Lend Us Your Ears, a podcast by Bard in the Botanics. Episode 3, Art to Enchant, How to Set the Scene. Hi, I'm Gordon Barr. I'm the Artistic Director of Bard in the Botanics. And I'm Jennifer Dick, and I am the Associate Director. So in this episode, uh, we've reached the point in our page-to-stage sequence of episodes where we're going to start looking at the design process for Bard in the Botanics, and we're going to be talking to our Head of Design, Karis Hobbs, about the process she undergoes as a designer and working with us as directors, uh, and the challenges and rewards of staging and designing work for an outdoor theatre company. We just wanted to let you know that due to lockdown restrictions, this interview was recorded using an internet conferencing app, so we apologise if the sound quality isn't quite as good as normal. So, welcome to uh, Lend Us Your Ears. Welcome to the podcast, Karis. Uh, we're going to go straight in uh, with the questions that we wanted to ask you and see where they lead us. Uh, so the first thing we wanted to ask was, uh, what is the first thing that you do when you know you're going to be designing a particular play for Bard and the Botanics? I mainly try and ignore anything I've ever heard about any production of that ever. Because my instinct is to go, ah, I've seen that. Doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care that I've seen that. I want to forget that I've seen that in order to get come to it with a new idea, a new vision. Um, and then I usually read the script. Um, and actually, mainly I have a conversation with one of you guys, which is very in-depth and helps me get to the point that I know where you're thinking of putting this play. And once we've had that conversation, then I tend to go to the script in more detail. So we were talking last week about the fact that, uh, about how heavily we edit and adapt and uh, alter the script. Do you wait for our version of the script or do you begin the process with a full text? I wait for your version. Um, I used to start with the full texts and then I would get myself into a muddle when I was like, hang on, we've lost four characters and I can't remember who that person is now being, especially uh, in the adaptations where you kind of combine some characters. It's much easier for me to come to it and just go, that is one whole character as opposed to thinking of it as going, oh, that was Richmond and now that's this person. It's much easier to just have them as you see them. Yeah, and try and not get caught up in bits of scene that aren't going to be in it. And when you're when you're going through that script initially, the script that we give you, what are, what are you looking for? Mainly uh, stage directions, because that gives me information. That I mean, what they say is important as well, and especially if they're referencing items of costumes or where they are, or you know, Burnham Wood, anything major like that. I was going to say Shakespeare. Shakespeare, not so much with the stage directions. No, exactly. That's, again, why I wait for your ones, because he's just like, yep, this happens. And you're like, okay. Uh, whereas you guys put in stage directions, which help. So um, with any script, whether it's Shakespeare or not, I always go through, my first pass is always just to read the stage directions, anything important. And yeah, with Shakespeare, there tends to be less very specific items, but it's always useful to read those. And then I go back and read the prose in more detail. And and where do your ideas come from then? Say you've had an initial discussion with us. How where is that? Is that like a ridiculous question? Like hard to quantify. It comes from different places every time. I think it starts with me going, "Here's an enormous statement that you've said," and then I just go and put everything down into one Pinterest board or into a sketchbook, and I just do some initial doodles. And then I leave it to mull for a little bit. And then I go through and go, 
that's rubbish, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, and sort of whittle it down to something that I think could be more interesting. Um, it, again, it depends on which one of you I'm working with, because Gordon tends to be more specific than you do, Jen. So it depends who is, uh, who's come to me with what statement first. I like the way you put that, Karis, uh, that I'm more specific as opposed to fussier or more demanding or know exactly what I want. I like working with both of you because of that difference, because Jen tends to go, kind of my idea, run. And you go, here's my idea with a little bit more detail. Then I go away and come back, come back to you and go, what about this detail? Can we put this in? And you're very open to those details as well. It's not like you go, it has to be Prada, which is good because we couldn't afford that. <laughs> I mean, I would if I could, but oh, I don't give you the budget for Prada. If only we could say <laughs> it must be Prada. That would be lovely. I, as you mentioned Pinterest there. Uh, that's become so important to us because it allows you and I or you and Jen the, uh, to just constantly share and update each other on ideas and inspirations the, uh, that we have for the shows, doesn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely. Um, it's part of my visual language now. If there's something that I'm trying to describe to one of you, it's much easier to just go, I think it's this color or this, if I'm, especially if I'm trying to describe a texture or something really obscure, I can generally find a reference for it and send it to you and go this kind of thing. But it's, it's for me, it's a, it's a very simple way to scrapbook. Um, at the beginning of my career, I still have them. Like my archive is enormous. These huge sketchbooks full of like pieces of paper that I've printed out and I've cut out and I've stepped into sketchbooks. I've killed trees doing that. Um, and my printing costs were enormous. So now I have a digital version of it and it's brilliant. It's, it's so easy and it's so, yeah, it's so accessible. And as you say, it does, it really helps us to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, that what you mean when you describe a particular kind of dress is, is the same thing that I mean when I'm talking about the same style and I'm not thinking of something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. It does just help get over any speed bumps that we might hit later on. It gets them out of the way really early when you go, no, not like that. Or yes, I love that. Or it just gives us a really good visual starting point to go from. Yeah, I have found it a great tool to be able to communicate what I mean to you because sometimes I have it in my head and I can't find the right words, but I can usually find something on Pinterest that I'm like, oh, like this, like this thing. It um, does mean that you can't get away from us. Like There must true. be nights because I, I know that when we're working on a show, for months leading up to the show, I'll just be lying on the sofa watching television of a night, finding things on Pinterest and adding them to board. You must just get a notification, ping, ping, ping for me. You go, leave me alone. I mean, they do have the handy mute function, <laughs> which occasionally gets occasionally gets turned on, but not very often, mainly because in the evenings, I'm also sitting there going, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. Yes, I don't need to see another photo of a folksy outdoor wedding from you, Gordon. I have 300 of them on my board already. Although when you tell me that you want a folksy outdoor wedding, I will have so many to go for. Indeed. <laughs> we should just clarify for the listeners that Karis's job is head of design. And as such, she, she designs both set and costumes. Can you tell us a little bit about your process after that then, once you've had a look at the script and been bombarded with a million Pinterest notifications from either of us, then, then what happens? So I generally take a break from talking to either of you and let the information distill um, that we've talked about so that I can sort of start to mould it into where I think the vision's going to go. And then I get into really practical stuff really quickly because when we're working with our budgets, there's things that I want to do and I need to find out quite quickly whether I am going to be able to do them before I come back to you and say, 
this is what I'd like to do because I hate doing that thing where I go, let's have this. And then I go, oh, we can't afford it. So I try and get over those jumps before we get to the point where I'm presenting you with a white mum box or costume designs. So once I've had a look at the practicalities, then it is just me putting together those things. It's um, pencil sketches of all the characters, generally. Maybe not every single costume if it's modern, because they tend to have a lot. But we, you know, we get shapes for everybody and get colours, colour palettes together for everybody. Um, and I do, um, again, with our, our process, it's a bit different because we have our stage already there and our furniture and our props tend to be found things rather than designed specifically. So it's a different process to what we would do for um, Panto, say, Gordon. So when we do Panto, it's a different thing for us. Yes, we we rarely end up with a a fully constructed model box for, uh, for a Bard in the Botanic show, because especially... The last couple of years, I think it was two years ago that we we had a, a kind of stage structure built that we're now using regularly outdoors. So we know what that looks like. The cast who regularly work with us know what that looks like. Anybody who doesn't, we can show them a photo of it and they start rehearsing on it pretty early on in the process. And then, as you say, anything that's added to that tends it's almost more kind of set dressing and furniture rather than a full set design. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not needing to go to Pretty Scenic and say who are our builders. Um, I'm not needing to go to them and saying, here's a very specific shape piece of set that we're going to need. Can you build it for me? Which is what I would do with other productions. So it is more about getting enough reference together that I can then work collaboratively with with Sam and with Susie and with yourselves to find the items that I would like on the stage and the style of of items that that, that will make up that world um, as opposed to here's an enormous model box. Um, but costume designs, you get you get a costume plate for every person, generally. This, this is true. Again, just to, to for anyone who hasn't been to Bard in the Botanics, we now have a, a kind of set stage structure that we use every year that is kind of based on the globe, I believe. Yes, it is based on the globe. So uh, Gordon came to me, yeah, we started talking about it three years ago and it came into fruition in 2018, I believe. Yep. Yep. Um, and it has a back wall with doors because Shakespeare writes for doors. Um, so we've got a double door in the centre of the stage. We've got a door to the left and the door to the right. And then there's stage exits at the front of the stage as well. Um, and then it has two posts and a roof. Roof, I say in inverted commas. <laughs> it's got a little bit of a canopy covering. <laughs> a covering. Um, the first year we didn't need it at all because it was so gloriously sunny that entire season, which was amazing. And then last year we used a waxed tarpaulin to keep the cast drier not completely dry but drier yeah it it builds our resilience to occasional showers rather than sustained rain yes tempests we cannot sustain but occasional showers it makes it just a bit more comfortable for the cast and a bit safer yeah so it, it does it has that kind of as jen said it's got a similar structure to the globe theater the same arrangement of doors in the back wall two pillars and it was really fascinating actually the, the reason we we built that structure was because you and I Karis had talked about the fact that we don't have huge budgets we don't have huge production budgets at all and we made the decision to invest in a structure that was going to last for a number of years rather than giving you tiny budgets to build an entire new set every year it became much more cost effective cost effective um, and then we discovered that, of course, the plays were written for a stage with that structure. So it's actually, it really helps, it really helps staging them. 
They act almost like they were written for it. Oh, yes, they were. They were. They were written for this thing. And yeah, I'm sure the globe is slightly more lavish, but I love our little, our tiny globe. Yeah. So do I. I think yeah. it's, it's we, a lovely we, space. And we just, we just tweak it a little bit every year, improve it a little bit every year. And again, what you were saying there about the costume plates, you know, because there is this existing structure which is being dressed appropriately for every show, then a lot of the focus goes on to the costume. I particularly like to ask you for a lot of costumes. It is partly because we do so many modern dress productions set in a contemporary world. And of course, when you do that, it's odd if people don't change their clothes for different social situations. So if... If you're doing a period production and everyone, you know, and say of Much Ado About Nothing, which is one that we've discovered needs a lot of costumes if you're doing it in the modern world, because the characters go from their everyday to a party, to a wedding, to a funeral service. And if you're wearing a period frock and not changing it through all of that, that doesn't jar with an audience. But if you're wearing the same frock for all of that, whether male or female, I'm using frock in terms of costume, not in terms of a gendered piece of clothing. If you turn up in the same outfit to all of those social occasions, it doesn't make sense for an audience. No, it doesn't tell the story in the way that our audiences would understand because, yeah, those are social social constructs. All of those events, funerals, weddings, all of them are social constructs that we all have an image of in our head. It's very frowned upon to turn up to weddings in black or funerals in white, you know, both of those. But... I, it'll be interesting to see how that develops in the next few years as things become less conservative, less traditional. So, I mean, it's just going to add more fun for us, I think. So you also design for the indoor space, the kibble as well. Are there are there massive differences between the way you approach an outdoor show as opposed to a kibble show? There's certain practical differences that come with designing for the kibble. Uh, mainly I can have long dresses in the kibble and they'll just get dusty. They won't get wet, which is always my joy. So quite early on, having worked with Bard for 11 years, 12 years now, 12 years, um, having worked with them for, with you guys for 12 years, I now know that you can't have long dresses outside because if it's even a little bit rainy, everybody's soggy to the knees. Um, so designing for the kibble does allow me to have full length dresses, which I do love to put a person in every now and again. I do remember a time in of Athens having the most beautiful white beaded floor length 1920s frog. I was so jealous of it. I so wanted it. It's it's beautiful. It's still there. It's still beautiful. Um, and also because it's warmer. So when we're designing for outside, generally there's a conversation had about, and if it's really cold, can we put a cardigan on with this outfit or can we put a jacket on or would they look weird if they wore a shawl at this point? Just for the comfort of the cast, really. We're in the kibble. If it's a warm summer, you're going, what can they take off while still wearing costumes? Because it gets so hot in the greenhouse. And then in the reverse, when it's a cool night, they're still going to be warmer than the performers outside. So there's just, just weirdly practical things. Also, the light is different from inside to outside. And I can use the whole spectrum of colours in the kibble, I think. Um, whereas outside I tend not to use too much green because you're surrounded by green as you sit on the lawn like the lawn is green the plants are green the trees are green everything is green and once you start putting green clothes within that situation they they just don't look as good as the real natural green that you're sitting on. So we've been talking there about some of the differences between designing for our outdoor stage and our Kibble Palace productions what generally though was the do you find are the main differences between designing for outdoor theatre and, and any kind of more traditional theatre space? 
are there things that you have to think about that you don't when you're designing for a, a traditional space? Just that lighting isn't really part of our conversation at Bard. Uh, we have our lovely floodlights outside and that's it. Yes, which are primarily there to ensure that the audience can see as it gets darker rather than creating any kind of effect, lighting effect. Yes, they're not there to be atmospheric, although they are. Um, they are literally there as a function to ensure that the audience can see the cast. But yeah, that, that really changes how I design. So outside, there's no lights to consider. There's no lights. There's no designer, lighting designer going to be asking me to change the way things shine, the way things glint, the way the, co the, way the colours work. We don't have to combine our colour palettes to make them match. So it just takes out a whole level of conversation that I have with another designer when I'm designing inside, designing for a traditional theatre space. And yeah, generally it's, it's, it's practical things for designing at, the, at Bard. There's something, because you say there, you know, with no lighting and things, things kind of just are what they are outdoors for that reason, isn't it? That, you know, you can't, we find this when we're creating the concept for the show, anything that's overly theatrical and unrealistic, you know, like indoors, you get a lot of shows that are conceptualized and designed to be kind of what we would call eclectic. So things are drawn from lots of different time periods to kind of, for whatever reason. Um, but something about that doesn't work outdoors because because you say everything's in natural light. It's the same thing we were talking about with, with one of the things that performers love. You know, the audience and the performance are all happening in the same space. They're all part of the same world. So it's quite difficult to pull off something that's overly theatrical. It's It's too real almost. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, everything is real on that stage. You don't have people disappearing in blackouts. You don't have the end of a scene being marked by a huge lighting change. Everything flows naturally. So you have to make the costumes and the set believable in that state. And they have to tell the story all the time. There's no point where you're going, well, that bit of furniture only tells the story for that one scene. So either then it has to be removed by a cast member or it has to be a piece of furniture that's going to work for the whole, the whole show. So it just changes the focus a bit. Yeah, we gave you a really kind of difficult one on that last year with, with As You Like It. Because the, the previous time you and I worked together on As You Like It back in 2012, where it was a Victorian period setting and a promenade production. So the Forest of Arden, central feature in the story of As You Like It is the Forest of Arden. We had a forest, we had the gardens, we had trees, we had... And then this time, last year, setting it on our built stage we suddenly had to, in a very real natural environment, I say we, you had to design an unnatural forest to live within natural surroundings. It must have been hard. It took a bit of thinking about. I think that was one of those phases where I just had to not speak to you for a little bit while I came up with what we were doing. But having you saying that it was that we were marking the seasons that was one of the key phrases from last year's production. We were marking the seasons. So it just meant that I knew where in the year we were as we worked our way through Arden. And that led me to making sort of central floristry pieces. I didn't make them. Beautiful Susie Goldberg made them and she did a very lovely job. Um, but we had our um, central pieces of floristry, essentially, that told the story of where we were in the year. And they were things that could have been pulled from a forest and put into this camp, into the camp in Arden. Um, but they just gave enough of us, enough of a nod to where we were, um, that we were outside 
without going, but really we are outside. Look over there, there's a tree. And it also meant that I didn't have to build lots of trees, which was helpful. Yeah, and it was, I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful designs we've ever had. So it, it's not impossible to be theatrical and imaginative. It, you know, we don't have to use that back wooden wall as a wooden wall. You know, we can, it, I mean, so far in just two years of seasons, it's been uh, a graffitied exterior wall in Romeo and Juliet. It's been the back stage entrance for a traveling victorian circus in much ado it's been a sleazy it's been a sleazy nightclub slash forested as you like it and it's been the interior of a grand baronial uh hall in hamlet it's remarkably adaptable it really is yes it's a lovely space to design for um but yeah that i think it just it means that we have to be very collaborative collaborative because anything you ask me to design to design then has to work for your company to make it work. So those floral pieces wouldn't have worked had you not built into your story the changing of the seasons, the moving of the items. All of that had to be taken on board from the design and from your our conversations to then get trans transmitted to the cast and how that would work. And the design would have failed completely had that not been so well thought through by the both of us. Why, thank you. <laughs> and thank you to you. Do you find there are any differences in your approach to a Shakespeare play uh, as opposed to a play written in another time? Or is it just the same, the same approach? It's very similar. But if I get a script that's been written now, it's so different because they're so, sometimes scripts can be so specific about the items that they want. Whereas Shakespeare, like we said, there's no stage directions really until you guys write them in and his stories are universal. So therefore we can put them anywhere we want to, so long as it makes sense to us and it makes us excited. Whereas other, other scripts can be really very specific. And as long as you say there, but we can set it anywhere as long as it makes sense to us. But we, we kind of talked before in previous episodes about the need for the, whatever world you create has to have its own internal logic. As long as we communicate what that internal logic is, uh, so that an audience can buy into it and not be questioning it. Yeah, you can't just throw strange curveballs. No, it's not the place to try and be overtly clever, I think. Shakespeare lends himself to being magical in lots of ways, but you don't need to try and trick the audience into thinking something it is, you know, something it's not. Yes, it comes back to the, the, the humanity, the human scale of it, those human stories. You've got to honour those in whatever way, however you choose to visually represent them. I think something that people might not realise about designers uh, that I think is, is fascinating is how much designers are storytellers in the same way that directors are storytellers, that actors are storytellers, that what you're doing basically is creating a world to tell a story and everything you pick is about communicating story I think the best designers do that absolutely brilliantly it's something that you do really well and because uh, I, I suspect that some people think oh a designer just makes it look pretty or not or whatever but your job really is storytelling isn't it yeah anything I put on that stage has to have a reason and it has to be useful generally especially on our stage because you know floor space is limited and especially if you're doing one of the one of the shows with a large cast you try and put all that cast and all the set dressing on that stage and it can get pretty crowded pretty quickly. So everything has to be, everything has purpose. It's not, everything is put there with purpose. Everything is designed with purpose. 
even if it's a small thing, it has to be thought through. I remember kind of your predecessor at Barton Botanics, actually, Sarah Pauley, uh, who was our kind of head of design in our early years before she passed the bat on to you and introduced you to the company. I remember her talking to, to me just about design and she always said that, you know, if you put a ch one chair on a stage, that is a design, but you'd better have made every choice about that chair to make it tell a story within. So, it, you know, just one chair is as important as making a huge set. It does, because every person, that chair says something to every person. So if you put a bentwood chair on the stage, which are the ones with the curvy backs, everyone kind of goes, huh, oh, 30s. Huh, Fosse, huh, Cabaret. It tells that story immediately. That's a visual tick that everybody knows. So you have to really consider if you're going to put that piece of furniture there, is that the story you want to tell with that piece of furniture? Or actually would a slightly less specific chair work better? That Laura, Laura Walsh at the Tron and I have a constant battle to find the perfect nondescript chair. And we there are four now in existence that we, we use regularly. <laughs> the one that what, has, has no... No connotations of space, or not so much space time, or or class, or yep, it's just a good simple chair. It's it's yeah, it's a perfect one. I love it. This this was a, a lesson I learned really early on. Uh, I directed a production at um, Queen Margaret University, and there were students designing. Um, I had a student designer, and there were a team of stage managers and design assistants, and it was David Copperfield. And it was like a massive Victorian box set. I loved it. It was beautiful. But one day, one of the stage managers came to me and showed me a chair and said, is this all right for, I don't know, Mr. McCobber's drawing room or something? And I looked at it and it, it was wooden and it looked Victorian to me. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And this caused just a, a massive fight basically because they hadn't checked with the designer beforehand and it was the wrong shape and I had just presumed if the stage manager is showing it to me they had already consulted with the designer and I'm going yeah sure it looks Victorian to me if I ne a mistake I never made again I'm always now and have you checked this with the designer because I don't know about Victorian chairs but the designer will have done the research and found out so yeah my weird research piles are huge now of the things that you just end up down a little wormhole about chairs or about random bits of furniture or you just end up with acres of knowledge you don't need in your head all the time but it's there taking up ram so picking up this notion of designer storytelling not the notion the truth of designer storytelling we've been talking in in some of the previous episodes about how we are much more drawn to using contemporary worlds modern dress um now you as you say you've designed for us for 12 years now and you've designed every period from Elizabethan through to most of the 20th century and a couple of things in between not so much Georgian because they have very long frocks as we've discussed there's a there's a kind of period in the middle that you don't do so much because of the length of the frocks but you've done a lot of different periods for us uh, but there's definitely been a shift in Barden the Botanics in recent years to a much more modern contemporary aesthetic do you find it's easier to tell stories because one of the reasons I like doing modern dress is because costume can tell story quite easily in that way that we have, we look at an item of clothing on someone and go, I know the kind of person who wears that. Do you find that's easier as a designer or do you like the, just the, the joy of working with big period costumes? Oh, bit of both. I love, I love working with period costumes because they tell 
a lovely story and you get just get some beautiful shapes and I think sometimes period costume make the audience go <sighs> like they feel like they've seen something more I guess because it is something unusual they've seen it and gone oh that was a beautiful period production you know it's that kind of thing but it is also fun to twist period and use it in different ways that that can be fun too but also you don't necessarily have to be specific with period costume because while i know that that shawl is the wrong period or that's the wrong kind of shoe or that's the wrong kind of hair clip not that many of our audience would necessarily spot all those tiny details if the storytelling is good like if if, if what i've said visually overall doesn't jar then they'll accept what i've put there for them to look at and then follow your stories which is lovely um but doing the contemporary stories doing the stories in a contemporary modern setting definitely adds challenge and adds depth and adds extra story and gives me just a chance to use things like color and pattern because people know the shapes they're like a pair of jeans but you're like yeah but it's a gray pair of jeans instead of a dark blue pair of jeans or you know just you get very specific about weird things that can just help you tell that story tell that character's story keep it in their palette all those kind of details become enhanced if you're doing a modern modern show i think as we've been working in recent years with this this core ensemble of our associate artists that we heard from the first episode of the podcast, um, and they won't always all be there every season, and you won't necessarily be designing the show they're in, but because those those artists have been with us uh, for uh, nearly as long as you, or just a little bit less, do you find it easier to design for the actors that you know, or do you find it rewarding to to design do you find it different even just to design for actors that you know yeah i love designing for the actors that we work with all the time because i know them i know where i can push them to i know where i can ask them to go and where they will happily go and we can have conversations about it so um as they've grown up as i've grown up as we've all grown up together i say grown up saying anyone could have started at any age in that growing up process but as we've all developed and gone through changes in our lives together it's interesting to see how their wardrobes have changed and to be able to take bits from them as people and feed it into their characters and make their characters more alive so Rob Elkin I love designing for Rob he generally just goes yep fine whatever and makes whatever you put him in look phenomenal every time yeah Rob just makes it look good always but we now know each other well enough that he can come to me if he's not comfortable. And we had that last year with As You Like It. And he came to me after the dress rehearsal and said, there's something about this costume that isn't helping me tell the story. And because that, co that, that production was very large in terms of costume and I was not necessarily always as present as I am because I was juggling a five month old and breastfeeding all the time and being at work and trying to be a new mum at the same time. So I was not necessarily as focused as I have always been. But he came to, he felt like he could come to me after the dress rehearsal, even though we were opening that night and go, there's just something about this that I'm not comfortable with that, that image of, of my story. So we worked on it and he, I said, okay, I, I'm not sure what it is you're trying to say at this point, so let's try and work it out. And he went off to a charity shop and I said, yep, here's some money, let's go and find those right items. And he did, he found that, that costume and it worked beautifully. It helped tell his story. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's other designers that would have gone, but that's not my vision. 
that my job at that point especially is just to be making sure that the story is working overall and if that one wasn't working for him and allowing him to be truthful to his character then I wasn't doing my job well. Well I think that was that was a specific situation because we talked we actually talked in last week's episode when we were talking about working on scripts about how that storyline because we had changed Audrey to Andre and so we were kind of moving the characters of Touchstone and Andre from the beginning of the process and through the rehearsal period that was their journey and who they were as characters and how they impacted on each other that was changing all the way through rehearsals so the the visual narrative that I had given you and we had talked about at the design process that ended up changing during rehearsals and so that's why I think I I think it came from I had said that Touchstone came into the Forest of Arden resolutely himself and wouldn't change his style where other characters became more comfortable and relaxed in the Forest of Arden. I was like, no, he he has his style and he sticks to it. Whereas Rob, because of the process he'd gone through in rehearsals, felt like no Touchstone was moving forward and was changing and he was essentially just missing a costume. He was missing a stage in the, the narrative. Yeah. This this is a, a drawback, I think, in our, and I mean this in terms of maybe the UK, maybe Western Europe, the, our system of, of preparing and rehearsing theatre, I think, because I think ideally, uh, and maybe Karis would disagree with me, but it, ideally it would be great very early in the process to sit down with the designer, with the actors, and have that, and have that kind of chat so that the design could evolve. But because... Um, in the UK and in Scotland, we have such ho- uh, short rehearsal periods. The design kind of has to be in place before you get into rehearsals, which can be tricky if something evolves in rehearsals, which it often does. Is that a problem? How do you how do you tackle that problem? That would be tricky in two different ways. I think it would be amazing to sit down with all the actors one by one and say, "What do you think?" However, I have had situations like that where I've had actors come to me before and go, I don't think my, my character would be wearing that. And as a designer, I'm not just designing them. I'm designing everybody on that stage, everybody's surroundings. And generally what they're wearing at that point is what the story is asking them to be wearing, is what I need them to be wearing in that point of storytelling. However, I do hope, I hope, I hope this is true and I hope the cast that are listening will agree with me, but I do try and be very open with the cast and whenever they come to a fitting I ask them to tell me I always ask them does that feel like Patricio does that feel like Kate does that feel like Touchstone I want them to feel like their character not just I'm Rob wearing a pair of trousers like they need my costumes need to be helping them tell their story and if they don't feel like it is then I try and address it and try and find a way around it to make them to help them to help the story but while it would be amazing to have everybody say, I think I should be wearing this, it would also then become an absolute nightmare trying to get everybody's ideas into one unified story. Because also, even if even if you can do that, at what stage in the rehearsal process do you have that conversation? Because an actor's view of their character is always going to be evolving. So at what point do you go, okay, uh, we've actually, somehow we've managed to have a three-month rehearsal period. I don't know anybody who gets that in the world outside of baby Russia. They, um, but, you know, we've got a three-month rehearsal period. But by two months into that, you're going to have to have decided exactly who your character is so that we can get the clothes made. You know, there, there's all that line just gets pushed and pushed. So there's, 
I think as long as there's a dialogue, as long as it feels like there can be a dialogue between director, designer and actor, then the fact that the deadline, the design deadlines happen before the actors get into the rehearsal room, I think as long as, as you said, that dialogue can happen in fittings, can happen throughout, um, as long as that dialogue can happen, then it's not too bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, the dialogue is necessary and it's part of being a collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, and the thing is, we're we're all artists and uh, um, we're all, our, our own artistry, our own talent, our own creativity is being brought to the process. And as long as, and I think this is something that theatre is still evolving with at the moment and the conversations rightly happening about how do we ensure that we have a process that recognises that all of us are equally important? You know, we've had, we still carry with us this Victorian structure of the director at the top and kind of a trickle down the uh, in terms of power structures. The, uh, and that's not, I don't think that's the best way. I think the role of the director has evolved and developed to to help shape a journey, but it doesn't mean that the input of the designer or the input of the actors is any less important. We, and so we're, what we're always trying to do is find the right way to balance and respect all of those talents on an equal footing. Absolutely. Yeah. I always find it strange that sort of my band of work is known as the creatives. So I'm like, literally everyone I'm working with is a creative and designers tend to get designers, choreographers, MDs, all of us get referred to as creatives, but I am equally as creative as the cast, as the director, as the stage managers, any as the technicians, anyone on that stage is being creative. So yeah, all of us, all of us are creatives. So what would be a couple of your favourite designs for Bard in the Botanics then? Comedy of Errors. 2014's Comedy of Errors was one of my most favourite bonkers things ever. I loved that design so much because you'd said, you know, we're doing with the, we're playing with the Scottish thing, the theme. And then I just went wild with it, which was great. So we kind of set it in this fantasy version of Scotland, not the real Scotland by any means whatsoever, uh, because the show was being staged in 2014, just uh, shortly before the Scottish independence referendum. Uh, and in the play, there are these two city-states that are antagonistic or at war with each other, Ephesus and Syracuse. Uh, and the Syracusian characters are in danger while they're in Ephesus where the play is set. Uh, so in a t- very, very tongue-in-cheek way, we kind of set Ephesus as Scotland and the Syracusian visits, visitors were all English. Um, and it was, yeah, it was to poke fun at the the idea of, of nationalism. It was in no way really what Scotland or the independence uh, referendum was about. Uh, and where that led you to visually was pretty much every tartan under the sun. Every brightly coloured tartan under the sun. And I remember you being just, it was one of those times I just had to push you a little bit because you were a bit like, oh my God, there's a world of colour on this page. What are you talking about? And Jiggy had designed a beautiful sort of slightly clipped set for the background and I just went, all of these colours, Gordon, not one or two, all of them. There was yellow, there was green, there was turquoise, there was red, there was all of the colours in tartan. And I loved it. It was such a riot of colour. And it's one of the, yeah, it's it was so much fun to make and work on. And I think the design really helped the comedy because it was so ridiculous and so bonkers. And it was being able to push it further and 
going. We've got wild hairstyles and bright makeup and just really pushing everything to its absolute extremes. Well, it's still keeping it kind of tasteful, I think. Yes, it was still fashion. It was style and fashion. It was just quite an over-the-top version thereof, which meant that, yeah, it, it took it out of any kind of real Scotland. So we weren't really making a comment on Scottish relationships with England. We were we were kind of making a joke, uh, a little tongue-in-cheek joke uh, into this fantasy world that that was. It was visually just one of the brightest, most bonkers, most joyous uh, shows we've ever staged. So any other particular favourites? Oh, it's so hard to choose. <laughs> like choosing between your children. Choosing my children. Um, I think Timon, actually, was one of my favourite kibbles to do. Because again, it, we worked with a very specific colour palette that just sat so beautifully in the kibble because it was all whites and greys and blues and it all just sort of melded. It bounced off the architecture of the kibble glass house, which is all white, the uh, white cast iron and then the grey blue of the slate on the floor. It all just melded very beautifully. Very classy. It was a 1930s set time in of Athens wasn't it so you had said it Jen so in, time in of Athens begins in a world of excess and uh yeah, luxury yeah so I said it just before um the Wall Street crash basically so 1929 and then just immediately following the Wall Street crash and we said the first half was very much in that kind of great Gatsby crazy party crazy party land Timon was very generous giving out all these parties all these gifts everything was silvers and sparkly it was a lot of champagne lots of champagne and we had like big ostrich feathers and things it was just fabulous and then the second half it turned into a Hooverville. Um, so basically a hobo camp for people who had lost everything. And we just had all of these cardboard boxes. And that is one of my favourites too. It was maybe one of the most complete worlds that we've ever staged in the Kibble. Because because the Kibble Palace is normally staged in a very thin traverse, there isn't a huge amount of room for set design. In fact, you know, the, the focus is very much on the actors and the audience and the relationship between the two. Um, which again puts the focus on costume, but uh, we rarely kind of try and conjure up an entire physical physical world, which Timon did really well. And it was, I mean, it was stage cubes essentially, very simple. It was there was nothing. It was stage cubes, wooden cubes painted white and silver, and then changed into cardboard boxes with, and it was all the set dressing and things that helped create that world in the props everything everything read very well it all just blended which was nice oh and my other one I did oh, I had another one which now I can't remember the name of <laughs> describe it <laughs> the nun oh measure oh. for measure measure for measure measure for measure thank you it's <laughs> like the nuns yes measure for measure was another one in the kibble that I I guess the costumes worked really well for me in that one. And they, it was hardly, it was, again, a very set dressing heavy one. But the costumes for me in that one were, yeah, lovely. Because, again, we've taken that, we've taken a contemporary world, but just put that little spin on it. We've taken quite a Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, it was slightly hunger, Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, there was just lots of different references that we kind of smushed into our world and it ended up being I think very effective yeah like the term futuristic because it wasn't futuristic it wasn't what we think of in that but that kind of sense of just imagining where in in a you know in a reality a few years down the line what what might 
clothes have gone to. So you're taking modern clothes, but just going, but what, what fashion might have evolved in that? Not far down the line and depending on certain journeys and certain choices. But yeah, just that's ever so slight, slight vision of just down the road. Yes. Yeah, it was just down the road in somewhere that you kind of recognise, but maybe you're not quite sure you've been there. Yeah, it was that place. And it, I, I loved doing that one. That was another favourite. And any that were particularly tricky to realise? The musical Midsummer Night's Dream was tough. Um, it was just enormous. Yes. So this was, I think it was one of the biggest casts we've ever had because we, we collaborated with the, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and uh, an entire year group from their musical theatre uh, undergraduate course, their BA course. Is there the entire of year, group, year group, I think it was, their entire year group came and joined the professional cast. So we suddenly had about 10 as well. So we ended up with, I think, maybe about 20... 23 or 24. Yeah, some of whom were doubling. Huge numbers. And this was my second or third year with you. So I was still learning, still trying to do huge amounts of design and detail for that many people with our budget, which at that point was very small. And a very small team as well. Very small team. Yes, maybe one full-time assistant and a, and a placement. Like it, it wasn't... It wasn't the structure we have now by any stretch of the imagination. And it was, it, it looked really fun, but it was seat of the pants time. Because it was all set in a, again, we talked about this production in the last episode, but it was all set in a, in a 1920s Moulin Rouge-esque uh, burlesque nightclub. Uh, so, and all the fairies had this, that was the influence and kind of... Slightly circus vibes. Circusy, yeah, it was, it was a huge imaginative job for you and then a huge practical job as well. Yeah, and it was 1920s, so there's just, those clothes have huge detail that I couldn't afford, which was stressful because then I was trying to make it happen where we didn't really have the money for it. And, and then I asked for things like, can we make sure that... Helena and Hermia's dress can rip apart over the course of the show and it was a very it was a baptism of fire early in my career for sure trying to get all of those things to happen and if we did it again now it would be different but still beautiful it's not one of those that I'm like oh my god it was beautiful and I loved it but it was a journey to get there yeah it was a lot of work it was very difficult to achieve the uh, in the circumstances that you were given but it looked amazing so just to draw the discussion to a close, I was going to ask, what do you think makes for a good director-designer relationship? Basically, I'm asking, what do you want from us to, to make your job easier? Good communication is key. Being honest and open is key because that allows me to come back to you guys and say, we can't afford it or we're going to have to change this if we want to have this. It gives me, it gives me option to come back and be straightforward and open about it and that makes our communications better it means that you can trust me to deliver what I say I'm going to deliver and I'm not going to turn around at the dress rehearsal and go oh yeah but we couldn't have that so I've given you this instead communication openness friendship the ability to sometimes go no to, do, to be able to say no is important but to mainly say yeah let's do it let's have fun let's just take this take this step and to sometimes go I don't know that's important for both of us. Sometimes I come to you and say, what about this? And you go, I don't know yet. And that's okay. That's fine. Like we, we just work until you do know it. And that's, that's also important. Because it is, it can be, it can be as difficult for a designer if they get a director who 
every time they show them something says, no, I don't like it. No, I don't like it. It can be, that can be obviously very difficult, but the reverse can be difficult as well, can't it? When you get a designer just because love it, love it, love it. Because you're not getting any kind of structure to work with it. You're not getting any boundaries to go, okay, so too much of that. Okay, I know if I do that, that's too far. Like, you, you, they're both difficult, aren't they? Yeah, it's got to be a collaboration. And there have absolutely been a few productions I've worked on, not with Bard and the Botanics, where I've had directors just go, just design it. And that's literally the extent of our conversation is just design it. And then you go, okay, um, any ideas of what world you're setting it in? And there's nothing, you don't get anything back. And that can be really difficult. But you guys collaborate so well that I don't waste time if you see what I mean, you're not asking me to design, you don't just go design it. And then I come back with a design and you go, no, but not like that. Can you try this? Which again has happened. So yeah, having a good open relationship is important. Just being able to chat through ideas and to be able to just go, oh, I, I balls that, balls it up. I think I need to try again. That's important too. Do you find it helps? Because obviously when we work, when we work on Bard in the Botanics, we're all working in the same area. We're all working within the Botanic Gardens. And so we're seeing each other constantly all day, every day, rather than, you know, in some design processes, you deliver your design, various departments take it off to build it, and you're maybe not back again in in the theatre or in the venue for another few weeks. But we're there kind of constantly. Do you find that that helps that, that communication? Yeah. Absolutely. It means that at lunchtime over a sandwich, I can go, oh, I found this thing. Is this right? And you can go yes or no. It means that I don't have to wait for rehearsal notes at the end of the day. It means I don't have to wait for the weekly production meeting to find out that actually something I said a week ago is no longer relevant or is out of date or doesn't matter anymore. Everything happens on an instant basis which is so important with us because our production periods are so small, like they are short and intense, but I think it works for us. Uh, we know how to work with that system and how to get through those mad weeks and how to keep each other cheerful. Uh, so I'm going to throw a kind of a last question, Karis, which we would kind of let you know what we were going to talk about, but it's, don't worry, it's not a difficult question. I'm just, I just wonder, is there something you'd love to do at Bard and the Botanics that you haven't had the chance to do yet? Something you'd like... A style, a, a type of show, uh, anything. Is there anything that you go, oh, I'd love to get a chance to do that at Bard one day? I mean, completing the canon. Completing the canon. How many How many have you done? Do you know how many you've done? Oh, I should have looked that up, shouldn't I? I think at the last count, for a while I was stuck on 13 to go, but I think I took, what did we do last year that I took off? Richard III. Yeah, so that came off last year. So I think I'm down to possibly 11 to go now. So not many. There's only a few big ones left to do that I haven't done yet. And then there's the ones that I'm not sure we're ever going to get to, but maybe we shall one day. Like Henry VIII, or as as we revealed last week, two noble kinsmen is very unlikely. <laughs> what did you describe it as? Twaddle. Twaddle. And it is twaddle. I stand by that statement. We're going to become known as the podcast that hates on two noble kinsmen. <laughs> no, we'll get you. We'll get you to the end of the canon. We've got to get to the end of the canon. It's like, I can't not do this until that's done. Um, so completing that, designing every Shakespeare would be amazing. Anything specific I want to do? I mean, probably, but I don't know specifically what it is yet. Not worry about the budget? That would be amazing. Yeah, literally, if you came to me and went, we won the lottery go wild yeah more money would always change how we do it because it would change 
staffing, it would change back to, you know, we might have dresses backstage, we might have more space, we might have any of those things. But then there's a challenge and a beauty to what we do on minimal budget. And, uh, and we've been talking, and it, it's something we might expand on uh, in the future, but uh, we've been talking about ways that we can make Barden Botanics more environmentally sustainable as well. That's that's something that's quite close to your heart, isn't it? It is. I am a notorious green hippie um, and I insta- you know, instigated the recycling boxes in the office because it was upsetting me too much. But I think the theatre industry as a whole, we need to become more sustainable. And that's difficult because then you're saying, yeah, but you've got to reuse something. Yes, and at what point does that start to limit your creativity and... What you can do. Yeah, you're like, am I lifting somebody else's design by using these three chairs? Or, you know, you've got to try and work your way through it, but it's important. Like, while we tell stories, the the world needs us to do it in a gentler way. Yeah, we're not lucky at Barton Botanics, but you know, we start from a reasonable position at Barton Botanics in that compared to most theatre productions and certainly big scale theatre productions, the amount of power that we draw on and start, you know, we, we have a couple of floodlights and a small sound system, you know, we're not tech heavy uh, because we're outdoors. No, our carbon footprint is relatively low. Like as a, as a theatre company goes, you know, we're not heating a building, all of those things count towards our carbon footprint. But uh, for me specifically, fast fashion is a problem. I don't do it in my normal life. I buy secondhand, I buy ethical brands. However, ethical brands tend to be more expensive because clothing should be more expensive if the expensive is for the right reasons. So not because it's got somebody's name on it, but because the workers who made that piece of clothing were paid fairly. They weren't expected to make 500 t-shirts for a dollar a day. And that, when we're working with tight budgets, is my day-to-day challenge, is to not allow fashion to be the be the resource that we use and tight time scales as well so kind of secondhand shopping and those kind of things they take time because you've got you've just got to go out and go searching and looking and you know whereas it's easier to click on certain websites and get fast fashion quickly yeah absolutely i could you know spend an hour on the internet and have a parcel the next day with maybe 20 costumes in it for not that much money but it's important to me that I don't do that unless it's absolutely necessary. You know, once we get to the crunch point, once we get to production week and somebody needs that extra thing and I haven't found it yet or an extra costume comes in and we can't get it quickly or something doesn't fit or it's broken, then those are the moments where I will bend that rule. But generally, I try and avoid it as much as possible because fashion isn't worth human life. No, and we're we're going to work with you in the coming years to do better as that as a company to to provide what's needed uh, in order to allow you and your team to to deliver in a more sustainable manner and I think that's that is important the, uh, as you say it's it, and it ultimately is good for the world it's good for theatre as well resource sharing you know all of it there's no there's no downside to it no there's nothing there going or you shouldn't do that. It's ab- every everything points to you. Absolutely should do that, and I get why it's not done all the time. But it's important to make it part of my conscious process that we don't just rely on certain fast fashion warehouses. Yeah, and I hope I, I hope 
Barton the Botanics will, well, I don't hope, it's it's up to me as artistic director to ensure that we we do, we provide the support to enable that to happen and uh, we're going to do that. It's fabulous even being able to have that conversation with an artistic director and not just get the eye roll of, yes, you green hippie, but we need to put a show on. Because while we are putting a show on, we're also making a dent in the world. So let's make ours smaller. On that note, we'd like to say thank you so much, Karis. It's been a joy talking to you. Very welcome. This is a difficult time for theatres and theatre companies around the world, and Barton the Botanics is no exception. We are working incredibly hard to ensure that we will be returning in 2021 for the company's 20th anniversary season. But if you'd like to support us and help us make sure that we can be there, please visit our website at www.bardenthebotanics.co.uk and donate to our crowdfunder fundraising campaign that will ensure the survival of Arden Botanics for years to come. You can also find us on social media. So have a look for us there. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram and we're on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Lend Us Your Ears is a Bard in the Botanics production. It is produced by Gordon Barr and Jennifer Dick with production support from Sam Ramsey and it is edited by Jennifer Dick. Our logo is designed by Jonathan McEnroe. I remember as well, correct me if I'm wrong in this, you saying that black doesn't massively work outside either, does it? Uh, obviously, there are times we've talked about you know the funeral at Much Ado About Nothing or the memorial service for Hero more accurately. You know, the, there are situations where black is appropriate, but as a, as a design style colour, it doesn't work great, does it? Not so great. Again, because um, our audiences are quite close to the stage in com- comparison to maybe some theatres. Um, no, I'm going down a... I can't think why black doesn't work. I can't remember why I said that. It's, I think it's because it's quite flat. It ends up looking quite flat outdoors. I mean, it doesn't matter. We, we can just take that whole section out, that question. I, I'll answer that question, but I, I was just like, what did I say? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, no, I can't remember why, but it is definitely a thing. Anyway, we'll this, not worry about that it. We'll just cut so, that that bit's bit so the outtake for the end. Okay. <laughs> all of this is getting cut. Jen, when you're listening, this is all getting cut. Okay.